0: Hey, warm welcome to First Move this Monday. I hope you had a great weekend or a fantastic start to the week wherever you're joining us from. It's good to be with you for the next hour. Coming up, a surprise move by OPEC Plus, the oil producers group saying they'll cut output by more than 1 million barrels a day from next month. As you would expect and as you can see in front of you, all prices are surging on the news. We'll discuss the implications and what it means for global inflation very shortly. Plus, a bombing suspect arrested. The latest on the explosion in St. Petersburg that killed a prominent Russian military blogger. And in just a few hours' time too, former President Donald Trump expected to land here in New York. The first time in American history that a president has faced criminal charges. And last, but most definitely not least, the world's first lab-grown shrimp. Yes. You heard me, the CEO of Shiok meets with her ambitious plans to reduce farming and fishing. In the meantime, investors also fishing for returns on the first trading day of the second quarter, the Nasdaq futures as you can see slipping, but what a performance from the first quarter. They fell hook line and sinker for a storming 17% rally for the tech heavy index. So giving a little bit back today, at least pre-market, we shall see what happens. It's best quarterly gain, though, in fact, in more than two years, shrugging off banking sector volatility and in fact benefiting from it. Higher market volatility meant lower interest rate expectations and lower interest rate expectations is good for tech stocks. And we certainly saw that. And in the meantime, an upbeat mood across Asian markets earlier Monday to Tokyo, Hong Kong and Shanghai, all higher, boosted by energy stocks, as you would expect. And that brings us back to that output reduction from OPEC+, Plus, which is where we begin today's show. Anna Stewart joins us now with all the details. Anna, the observation straight away from me, not only the knee-jerk reaction in oil markets, but also this is the largest OPEC members taking this decision and therefore more likely to adhere to the cuts that they promise.
1: And we also had that element of surprise, didn't we, this Mm. coming on a weekend, not uh, during an OPEC meeting itself. So I think that surprise has also caught the markets off guard. And this comes despite the fact that China, oil-hungry China, of course, has come back to the market in full since ending its zero-COVID policy. So in terms of demand for oil, that has increased since the last output cut in October. So we are seeing prices much higher this morning. I think they were above 8% higher when they opened this morning. They've come back a little bit. Some analysts saying this morning that they could hit $100 a barrel by the end of the year. And we can show you where those cuts fall. As you say, the big players obviously taking the biggest cuts. Saudi Arabia opting to take 500,000 barrels per day off the market. Russia extending its cut that already existed. We were largely expecting that. And also big cuts from players like the UAE, Kuwait, Iraq. Um, Overall, more than 1.6 million barrels off the market. So this speaks to the fact that the cartel are clearly wanting to put a floor under prices. But also, I think, aren't that worried in terms of market share? And I wonder whether that's to do with U.S. shale output slowing. And also looking at those U.S. strategic reserves, which are now at the lowest level since 1983, the U.S. still hasn't bought oil back to fill up its reserves, uh, which I think also feeds into this story.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many elements here to discuss. I and mean, you can go in more depth about any of these as, as you please. But I do think your point about the fact that this perhaps is a very different moment than the cut that we saw back in October. And let's be clear, particularly from the United States, there was a lot of noise and um, uh, disgruntled commentary about that. And yet we did see oil prices fall. They matched the growth slowdown that we were seeing this time around. Perhaps the story is a little bit different. What does it mean for global inflation? I think that's the big question mm. now.
1: Well, the story might be slightly different, but the U.S. response was very much the same from the White House spokesperson yeah. from the National Security Council saying they think it, it's inadvisable given market uncertainty. And it does really muddy that outlook, doesn't it, for economic growth, for inflation, given so much hinges really on energy prices. And we're looking at whether it's the Federal Reserve, the ECB in Brussels, the Bank of England over here, all looking to come to the end of their rate rises that hinges on inflation and energy is such a big part of that. So it has really complicated that picture. Uh, and I think for anyone who is already, already struggling with uh, inflation, the cost of living crisis, the cost of loans, of debt, of mortgages, this potentially isn't really that good news.
0: Yeah, I think we spoke to the head of the International Energy Agency in light of that cut in, or the cut announcement in October of last year. And I think he described it as unhelpful. <laughs> which I think yeah. was um, perhaps appropriately said. Yes. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right. Russia says Ukraine may be behind the murder of the pro-Kremlin military blogger known as Vladin Tartarsky. He was killed in an explosion to St. Petersburg Cafe on Sunday. Authorities say they have detained a female suspect named as Daria Trapova. They say she was working with Kyiv. You can see her here in the cafe before the explosion. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, what more do we know about this um, female suspect involved? I, I read earlier this morning that she attended one of the protests at the start of the war in Ukraine. What more can you tell us?
2: Yeah, that is being reported, Julia, by Russian state media Mm. that she was, in fact, at a protest on the very first day of the war, February 24th, 2022, and was arrested and uh, reportedly even spent some time, a few days in jail because of that. So potentially an anti-war Activism, some anti war activism uh, in her past. Uh, what we also know about her, she's 26 years old. She's a native of St. Petersburg, arrested uh, reportedly uh, earlier today in an apartment that she was renting uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, she has appeared now in a video which we're not going to show you, released by the Russian Interior Ministry, uh, potentially because it could have been extracted under duress. We just don't know at this stage. But she, uh, it was a 24-second video where she's being questioned by a male voice. Says that she was at the scene uh, where Vladimir Tatarsky, this uh, blogger, was 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 attending an event, was giving an event. Uh, that she gave him uh, a figurine and it exploded. She was then asked who gave her that figurine and she declined. Uh, to talk about that. So a a strange, bizarre video. We don't exactly know the circumstances of that yet. And obviously, we're not showing that to you. But obviously, this is also very political, Julia. This is happening in the context uh, of the war in Ukraine. The Russian authorities, including the Kremlin spokesman, blaming Ukraine for this. Dmitry Peskov saying, you know, they have been linked with terrorist activities in the past. They've been killing people since 2014, he said, and, and justified the military operation. Because of that, he said, this is why we're carrying out uh, this special military operation in ukraine but of course this has happened this was an attack in russia's second city a pretty major attack more than 30 people injured alongside that one death given the amount of resources that russia is now piling into its national security they clearly cannot let this one lie julia
0: no certainly not Uh, any further headlines on that we will bring them to you for now claire sebastian thank you so much for that Now, Finland will officially become a NATO member on Tuesday. The country's president, Sauli Nisto, will travel to Brussels for an accession ceremony and meeting with NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg. The country submitted a joint application for membership with Sweden in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Sweden's bid has been stalled amid opposition from both Hungary and Turkey. And in the meantime, the head of the Russian mercenary group, Wagner, says a Russian flag has been raised on the battlefield in Bakhmut in memory of Vladen Tatarsky, the Russian military blogger, as we were just describing, killed in an explosion in St. Petersburg. Evgeny Prigozhin made the comments in a video reportedly filmed in the city. CNN could not immediately confirm his location. Prigozhin also claims Bakhmut has been taken, something Ukraine denies. President Zelensky said the fighting there was, quote, especially hot. Ben Weidman joins us now from eastern Ukraine. Ben, great to have you with us. It's not the first time that the head of the Wagner Group has suggested that they are now in control of Bakhmut. But, of course, stringent denials still from the Ukrainians. What more can we glean?
3: Well, he did say that Bakhmut is in legal terms, and those are the words he used, uh, has fallen, but uh, it's not altogether clear what he means by that. He did raise this flag uh, in the dark in Bakhmut. So there's no way anybody can locate it. Now, the Ukrainians have responded saying that Bakhmut, and this is the word, in the words of the spokesman for Ukrainian forces in the eastern part of the country, he said Bakhmut is Ukrainian, and they, the Russians, have not captured anything and are very far from bringing that to be. Uh, So clearly, the Ukrainians flatly denying it, We understand that perhaps the Ukrainians still control 35, maybe 40 percent of the city. Uh, Overnight, or rather yesterday, there were more than 20 Russian attacks on Ukrainian positions, according uh, to the the same Ukrainian army spokesman. Now, it's difficult for us to confirm any of this, because since the 21st of February, Bakhmut has been a red zone declared by the Ukrainian military. Journalists are not allowed in the city, unlike for instance in January when we were going in almost every day. Now clearly the Russians are desperate to achieve some sort of victory after their prolonged winter offensive that doesn't really seem to have accomplished much except for taking part of Bakhmut, but not all of it. And it appears that at this point they may be slowing down their operations and preparing defensive positions in anticipation for a much-talked-about Ukrainian spring offensive. Julia?
0: Ben. Ben, we've been there in eastern Ukraine. Thank you so much for that. Okay, first TikTok. In the spotlight, now Pinduoduo, one of China's most popular shopping apps, has been suspended by Google while it investigates possible malware use to exploit vulnerabilities on users' smartphones.
4: Chrissy Lu Stout has
3: more.
0: In
4: China, Pinduoduo is an e-commerce heavyweight. It broke the dominance of Alibaba and JD thanks to its bargain bin prices, a social shopping model that encourages people to buy with friends, and a focus on lower-income rural users. The app has more than 750 million monthly users in China, and the app is now under fire over malware. Malware is short for malicious software, and CNN has spoken to an array of cybersecurity experts who say that they have identified malware in versions of Pinduoduo. This is highly unusual, and, and it is pretty damning for Pinduoduo. We have found
5: that it uses techniques to get extended functionality. i never seen anything like that before.
4: Cyber experts say the malware allows Pinduoduo to bypass users' cell phone security, monitor activities on other apps, check notifications, read private messages, and change settings. And once installed, it is difficult to delete. The app can also obtain user data, like this photo of a beloved pet taken from a user's album.
0: Well, we have to underline the fact that this isn't a problem for users in the West. People are using these third-party app stores inside mainland China, and that's where the problem was, and that's where users should be worried about this.
4: In March, Google suspended Pinduoduo from its Play Store after finding malware versions of the app. In a statement, Google said, we have suspended the Play version of the app for security concerns while we continue our investigation. Door said it rejects the speculation and accusation that Door app is malicious just from a generic and non-conclusive response from Google.
0: Our team has reverse engineered the code and we can confirm that it di- tries to escalate rights. It tries to gain access to things normal apps wouldn't be able to do on Android phones.
4: CNN also spoke to a Pinduoduo employee who says the company in 2020 set up a team of about 100 engineers and product managers to dig for vulnerabilities in Android phones and develop ways to exploit them and make a profit. Speaking anonymously for fear of reprisals, the source says the team was disbanded on March the 7th, with many told they would be transferred to its sister app, Timu, but a core group of 20 people remain. Pinduoduo's parent company PDD Holdings did not respond to CNN requests for comment. The allegations come as PDD pushes beyond China with Timu, which sells cut-rate Chinese products to mainly U.S. customers. Launched in September, it quickly became the most downloaded app in the U.S.
5: Until the Pinduoduo can release something like the, you know, like the uh, full disclosure of the how did this incident happened, Probably before that, we shouldn't trust any uh, applications from Pinduoduo.
4: Timu is still available to download on Google Play, but the suspension of its sister app, Pinduoduo, and the evidence of malware are all casting a cloud on the Nasdaq-listed company at a time of heightened tension and security concerns over tech that's made in China. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And we're learning more about the suspected
0: Chinese spy balloon that flew over the United States back in February. As source CNN the balloon was able to collect images from U.S. military sites and transmit information back to Beijing in real time. They said U.S. experts still do not know whether the Chinese government had the ability to wipe the balloon's data. Officials say the U.S. knew what the balloon's path would be, and authorities were able to protect sensitive sites and censor some signals before the balloon could pick them up. The FBI is still examining the balloon, but officials have learned how it was powered and also designed. OK, coming up on the show, surprise OPEC. Supply cuts complicate the global fight against inflation. We'll have more on the energy squeeze when we return. And New York gears up for Trump's time in court. Political strategist Greg Valliere joins us to tell us just how much it really matters. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and to some kind of history in the making. Just hours from now, former President Donald Trump is set to return to New York to face criminal charges. This will be the first time in U.S. history that an ex-president will be arraigned in court. Later today, the judge is expected to decide, too, whether he'll allow cameras inside the courtroom. And here's a look at some pictures taken over the weekend with the former president spotted waving to supporters. Paula Reed has a look ahead. Former President
6: Donald Trump is expected to arrive in New York Monday afternoon, ahead of what will be the first ever arraignment of a former president of the United States. Over the weekend, his legal team was on the attack.
7: The team will look at every, every um, potential issue that we, we will be able to challenge, and we will challenge And Of course, I very much anticipate a motion to dismiss coming because there's no law that fits this.
6: But the charges against Trump have not yet been revealed, even to his lawyers, and will only be unsealed Tuesday unless the judge agrees to grant a request made by several media outlets, including CNN, to unseal it sooner. CNN has learned the charges include more than 30 counts related to business fraud. A grand jury returned an indictment Thursday after a years-long probe into a hush money payment made to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the days leading up to the 2016 election. Trump has gone on the offense, attacking District Attorney Alvin Bragg, calling him corrupt, claiming Bragg is using a venue where it is impossible for him to get a fair trial. And as he has done before, even going after the judge who will oversee this case, claiming he hates him and alleging he treated his companies viciously in a prior case.
8: It's deeply ironic that a person who spent a good part of his four years in the White House trying to weaponize the Justice Department against his political enemies Mm -hmm. is now saying he's the victim of persecution. It's sort of what comes around, goes around.
6: Security preparations are underway for Trump's initial appearance in this Manhattan courthouse. He is expected to be fingerprinted, but it's not clear if he will have a mugshot, sources tell CNN, amid concerns it could leak in violation of state law. And sources tell CNN Trump is keeping track of who is publicly supporting him.
3: The case, uh, based again on what's being reported, the case lacks any legal basis. It's pursuing somebody on the, there's nothing inherently wrong or illegal about making a hush payment.
8: We're not dealing with a blind,
1: a blindfolded lady justice uh, in this situation. We're dealing with a political prosecutor who has stated that he is going after President Trump.
0: And joining us now, Greg Valliere, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Oh, Greg, there are so many things important things that we should and could be discussing at this moment, but we'll start with this. Um, Your note today says the circus is in town. What kind of circus are you expecting?
8: Oh, it's going to be quite a show, I'm sure. I'm sure the ratings will be great. Uh, Donald Trump's numbers have gone way up. He's ahead by 30 percent against uh, DeSantis, Julia. So you've got a, a, a circus that will help Trump rather than hurt him.
0: Wow. I mean, this is important, Greg. What we're saying is a sympathy vote, a popularity vote arguably means that it's increasing the likelihood that he becomes the nominee for the Republican Party for the election in 2024. Does that mean also that it's less likely, therefore, that the Republicans win the election?
8: well that's a great point and i think that while trump looks like he's the front runner to win the nomination winning the general election is another story and and unless we forget there are three other big big cases to come uh the uh, taking documents out of the white house the georgia uh, vote of course and and obviously january 6. so this in my opinion based on what's been reported this is the weakest of the four cases
0: And uh, just to remind my viewers, we're looking at, I could say it may or may not be the former president's plane, but I think it's clear that it is. That's waiting for him there in West Palm Beach, waiting to bring him to New York. Um, The point that you made, I think, about these charges, and we still don't know what these charges are versus some of the other cases that are likely pending against him and will come up in the near future, is that I think there's general consensus, actually, that this one and these these charges are going to be relatively weak. The sympathy vote that he appears to be getting tied to this, do you think that dissipates to some degree when we start to see some of the other charges potentially appear against him?
8: That's that's a very good point. And I think while this is weak and it's based on testimony from a convicted felon, the next three cases are, in my opinion, a lot more substantive. And maybe this... A political frenzy that Donald Trump has been wronged uh, will get a lot more serious when we see, for example, how he tried to manipulate the vote in Georgia or what he did on January 6th. Then it gets a lot more serious. And then
0: potentially Trump fatigue kicks in.
8: Potentially, but it, it is a circus right now. I mean, no one's talking about the price of oil or Friday's Ugh. unemployment report. <laughs> it's, all, it's all Trump, all Trump all the time. And that's the way he likes it.
0: I am. Let's talk about that decision from uh, OPEC plus to further restrict supplies. It got, as you would expect, a similar kind of response from the White House that we saw back in October. And yet, you know, the White House complained and then all prices came down despite that cut. What do you make of this one?
8: I think in the short run today, obviously, the price of oil is higher and it may be higher for the next few days. But if, in fact, the U.S. economy is starting to soften, Not sure about that, but it looks like it may be starting to soften. Then the price of oil may not go up by much more. It might start to level off, maybe even go down. Yeah,
0: I mean, we've already got the knee-jerk reactions of um, analysts talking about $100 oil, but the uncertainty here, I think, is great, particularly on the economic outlook and and anything else at, at this moment, we shall see. One of the other things to look ahead to this week, the president of Taiwan, back in the United States later on this week, set to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Greg, very important for Taiwan. Equally, I think, focused upon and watched in China.
8: Absolutely, Julia. I think that this... Uh, could annoy the Chinese to a level close to what uh, happened when Nancy Pelosi went last August. The Chinese were very upset they had aggressive military exercises kept everybody on edge. And I think if the president of Taiwan does meet with uh, McCarthy and many of McCarthy's allies out in California later this week I think it'll be just still another reason to feel that U.S. China relations are going to stay pretty rocky for quite a while.
0: Consequences. I'm sorry, do you think there will be consequences? I sort of look to the, the trading relationship and what still exists yeah. in terms of restrictions.
8: I do. There were more trade restrictions over the uh, the weekend. Yeah. Uh, there may be more coming. The Trump imposed uh, sanctions will not be lifted. And McCarthy has a committee, as you know, uh, formed to look at alleged uh, Action by China that is uh, not very, uh, not very good. So I, I think that uh, you could see even more trade consequences, not less.
0: And on the U.S. side, is a TikTok ban all but given?
8: I think it probably will happen. There's, a, there's still a chance of a last-minute uh, reprieve, but I, I think that that it will get uh, banned at some point. Yeah. Yeah, Greg.
0: Great to chat to you. You see, we at least talked about other things as well. Plenty of important things to discuss in addition. Craig Bellier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. I think most of us are familiar with the concept of lab-grown meat. Well, now one firm wants to put lab-grown seafood onto our dinner plates within a matter of years. You're actually looking at a selection of dishes from Shiok Meats, which grows shrimp, prawn from cells rather than requiring traditional mass farming and then fishing. The company says it's close to getting regulatory approval to sell their lab-grown product in Singapore with the aim of entering restaurants by the middle of next year. That would give food fans a cruelty-free and more sustainable seafood alternative. Here to discuss it, Sandhya Sriram is the CEO and co-founder of Shiok Meats, and she joins us now. Sandhya, fantastic to have you on the show. Just start by explaining the vision. Sure. Pleasure
7: to be here. Thank you. So I think uh, you covered it. The idea was to not use traditional methods or not having to go into the oceans or set up large-scale shrimp or lobster or crab farms. And so we work on shellfish or crustaceans. We extract stem cells from them and we make the meat that we eat, not the shell, the head, the eyes, just the meat inside that we want to eat. And the whole vision is to provide sustainable food, cruelty-free nutritious and delicious for the mass population that we are and that we'll grow into in the next couple of decades
0: okay you make it sound so easy the science part that is (laughs) talk to me about the complexity of that the ability to scale up how long it takes and I think the first thing I wrote was what about chemicals hormones additives just in the process of of trying to create this and, and scaling up For
7: sure. I mean, I can give you a first, a short version of it. So what we do essentially is we take muscle or fat stem cells. That's essentially what your meat is made up of. So if you take a piece of shrimp and you de-shell it and de-vein it, the meat inside is just pure muscle and maybe fat in lobster and crab, but in shrimp, it's pure muscle. So we take these stem cells and these stem cells are like cell zero of an animal. So they're like the birth cell of any organ, any tissue. So we take these stem cells outside of the animal's body, and these cells have an amazing capability to grow outside of the animal's body because we mimic the surrounding to feed, make them, sort of trick them into thinking that they're still inside the animal. So these cells then start forming the muscle outside of the animal's body in a large stainless steel tank called a bioreactor or a fermenter, much like a brewery. But instead of beer, you're sort of brewing seafood and meats here. And how we do that is by feeding these stem cells with nutrients. And that's where your question about chemicals and hormones and all that comes in. So one of the largest codes that we have cracked at Shiok Meats is not using any hormones or chemicals or any of the animal serums or any extracts from animals for this. This is called a nutrient mix or a nutrient broth, much like a soup for the cells to grow in and a nutritional sort of a protein shake. It's made up of proteins, carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, and all of that. And we extract all of these ingredients from plants and we grow this liquid medium along with the cells. And in about four to six weeks, we get real shrimp meat, real crab or real lobster meat. This is sort of the shortened version of it. Of course, to answer your question on scale, we are not there yet. I think the industry is less than a decade old, the whole cultured, lab grown, cultivated industry. So we are all trying to scale up our technology. I would say majority of the companies that started in the last, let's say, five to seven years, including ours, are at a stage where we can produce small quantities of it in smaller kilograms or pounds. But we are all aiming to get to that mass production that we need for the rest of the population that will take about a decade or so.
0: Oh, I've got so many questions now. Um, So basically what (laughs) you're saying, though, in terms of nutritional value, it's comparable.
7: Nutrition-wise, I would say I see. I, I don't want to say it's same. Or I know similar, it's difficult. Right? It is we, yeah. It is very difficult. But I would say basal, um, basal analysis and tests by us have shown that the protein levels are somewhere there, similar. I would say, but we can push that. Uh, the vitamins and the micronutrients are not there yet, so that one has to be tailor-made. But all of this can be looked into from the nutrient mix that we're feeding the cells.
0: Yeah, interesting, because you can tinker with it, which I guess was my next question. In terms of taste and texture, though, similar or identical, arguably, to um, living shrimp or or lobster. We were just showing some video there and the the lobster roll, it actually looked like lobster. My question comes down to shape. Shrimp shaped? Yes. Or lobster shaped? So you actually can sort of... Right. Yeah, talk to me about the shaping right. process. We don't we yeah, <laughs> we don't have the shape or
7: the texture yet. So if you have seen all the videos, you would see most of the products actually have a minced meat inside of it, even the lobster roll or the dumplings or the chili crab. All of it are dishes where we use minced meat at this point because that's our final product. But we are working on a 3D shaped product, but I would say that is going to add to cost and a little bit of complexity of the technology. So we'll get there eventually. But for now, we're concentrating on the minced seafood market. Coming to taste, it is actually inherent in our product. We haven't had to manipulate it. It is all inherent, the umami flavor. In fact, at the end of our process, the left out liquid medium that we have grown ourselves in or the meat in actually has so much umami flavor in it that we convert that liquid into
0: a seasoning powder. So our entire process is zero waste as well. Yeah, because I think we've all eaten shrimp in the past that actually tastes of nothing. And you're like, wow, you know, <laughs> I actually love the shrimp flavor, but these taste of nothing. So that's quite interesting too. What about cost? I mean, we've said it's, you've got to yeah. scale it, it's early days, but I read something that said somewhere between two to four times sort of in a, in a um, mass equivalence for shrimp that you buy today. Obviously the hope has to be that that Can- comes right down.
7: Correct. Um, I mean, when we started off five, almost five years ago, we we were producing shrimp at about $10,000 a kilogram. That was what our pricing was. And the first, I think the first beef burger that was made by a professor in the Netherlands way back in 2013 or 14 costed him one patty costed him $300,000. But we have come a long way. I think that company and that professor make it at a few, few hundred dollars right now. We are at about $50 to $75 a kilogram right now. Which is still premium priced, I would say, for shrimp, but not so premium priced for lobster and crab if you think about it. And also in our case, if you're paying $50, you get 100% meat. You don't get the shell or the wastage or any of that. But we are working really hard to scale it up and make sure that the pricing goes down eventually with economies of scale.
0: Yeah. Who's the client for this? Let's say in an ideal world, you get the price comparable. So on a price basis, there's no choice between, between the two. Who's the client for this? Because I do think there'll be people watching going, oh, the cells and the cocktail and the mix, and this is not clean food, however you choose to look at it. Who is your customer and your client? I completely agree with anybody who says no or yes, or maybe
7: for it, because I think at the end of the day, consumers have the choice to choose what they want to eat, you know, what they put on the table and in their stomachs as well. So I would say early adopters for us are either flexitarians or people who don't eat meat for animal cruelty or ethical reasons, For, for example, vegans who have become vegans in their lifetime, over their lifetime. So we are seeing a lot of interest from early, uh, early interest from millennials, Gen Zs, the younger generation that is extremely worried about the environment, animal cruelty, uh, nutrition, at the same time what is happening to their body as well as the animal's body eventually when they eat meat. So I would say it's more on the flexitarian, but the essential target market in the longer run is actual meat and seafood eaters because what we're telling them is here's another choice for you to make. You can enjoy the same taste of shrimp, crab and lobster or red meat or white meat or whatever it is, but it doesn't have to come from a slaughtered animal.
0: Yeah. I also think to your point about younger people, the audience and the market will grow as they age and and younger people have the same views as them as as they grow up as well. Um, And at some point, given increasing population size and scarce resources, Um, choice will be a luxury, I think, perhaps on some of these things, which ties to my next question, which is the plant-based meat craze, where everybody was talking about it. They thought the market would be huge. Um, Founders and those in these companies that we've spoken to even recently have said, look, it is early days to your point too. I just wonder whether you see this product that you're creating is different or similar in terms of ideals and whether there's a a craze, but that the perhaps the danger is that it's tough to convince people.
7: I would say we have a lot of learnings from the plant-based meat industry. They sort of did it first. We're learning from them. We have seen what they've done and we can learn from what not to do or what to do, for example. The market is growing. I don't think we have captured even, you know, the cultivated industry hasn't even captured 1% of the total market yet. And we are talking about a multi-trillion dollar market with regards to Uh, Dairy, meat, and seafood, for example. So it's going to take a couple of decades to get there, but we are on the positive stride to get there. And I think for plant with plant-based meats, if you compare, I don't think it's a comparison. We are complementary to each other. In fact, most of the cultivated meat companies, including ours, make hybrid products because at this point, a hundred percent cultivated product is probably too expensive. We can't, we are not at that scale. And, you know, the questions are too many by the consumer. So we are looking at a hybrid product. We, in fact, work with plant-based meat companies to make a plant-based and a cultivated hybrid product at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think one of the um, perhaps mistakes, if I may say, that members of that industry made was over-promising in the beginning. And you're certainly not doing that. I think you're very realistic about the time um, and and what it's going to take, I think, to, to convert people and get people eating this. Singapore is also something that I see tying a lot of the investment and the location of these kind of businesses. And it sort of makes sense to me, given what 90 percent, I believe, of food for Singapore is imported. So they understand better than most the importance of um, food chain supply issues. Talk to me about being in Singapore and how supportive the government and regulators are pushing this.
7: For sure. I mean, I have a very interesting anecdote here. When we started in August 2018, Singapore wasn't talking about food tech or food security or any of them. I mean, food security is always on our minds here because, like you said, we import 90 percent of our food. But then six months after we started the company, the, the week we launched our prototype dumplings, Singapore announced this whole food story and 30 by 30, where they want to increase their local food production from the current 10 percent to 30 percent by 2030. Um, So much millions of dollars are going to get injected into this industry and we're going to support plant-based and cultivated and insect-based and so on. And the whole buzz has been awesome for us. That boost has been awesome. But I think Singapore is basically setting an example for the world to show how the government, the private, the universities, the education sector, the startups, the large MNC companies can all come together to solve one big problem, which is food. And food is so essential for our livelihoods on a day-to-day basis. And I think through the pandemic, we learned that we weren't able to get the products that we generally walk into a supermarket and buy. It was hard to go and source them. There were so many food supply chain issues, disruptions here and there. And I think it also showed us that regional food production is what we should look at. So I think Singapore strengthened all of that. And they're working towards a step-by-step sort of a format towards showing the world how it can be done and also bringing in the regulatory framework, which is so important for cultivated meat as such. So we need a proper framework. It is a novel product. We need utmost safety assessments done. And we're happy that Singapore is one of the first countries to come up with a regulatory framework and also approve a product um, a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, it has to be collaborative and it actually has to be global because food insecurity is happening all over the world and it's only going in one direction. So, um, yes. Playing your role. It's going to be fascinating to watch progress. Sandia, for now, thank you so much. Great to chat to you. The CEO and co founder there Great, of Shiok Meets. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move and the first trading day of the second quarter of the year. US stocks, a bit of a mixed bag, as you can see. The Dow higher by some seven tenths of 1%, some easing back for the tech-heavy Nasdaq after that whopping 17% rally that we discussed in the first quarter of the year. Some of the major movers today, the energy stocks, including ExxonMobil, Chevron and Shell, all higher by some 4 to 5%, as you can see across the board. And this follows the Saudi-led OPEC Plus announcement that they'll cut output by more than 1.6 million barrels a day from next month. That includes obviously an extension of the 500,000 barrels from Russia. Joining us now is Amrita Sen. She's the co-founder and director of research at Energy Aspects. Amrita, great to have you with us. Were you caught off guard by this decision? Certainly uh, oil market investors were.
5: I do think there was some momentum in in recent days after Russia came out and talked about, or rather they announced that they were going to cut 500,000 barrels per day. Uh, But yes, I I do think the timing of it uh, was a little bit surprising uh, in the sense that you know, I, I am very much, I or rather I understand the logic behind this, uh, the fact that OPEC needed the market to stabilize outside of the macro mayhem, so that when they do put through the cuts, the oil markets actually pay attention, rather than putting through the cuts at a time when it was all about the banking crisis. And even if they cut production, we could have still sold off $10. So I understand the logic and the timing of it, but, and I, I did, Somewhat expect that there is definitely something in motion, but the exact timing of it can never be, uh, you know, it can never be called.
0: Yeah. Explain the logic, because, again, and it happened the same way in October. There was criticism. The White House is obviously a notable example, but but others saying, you know, why do this at a moment when and the key difference being between now and October, China. Is now rebounding. It's coming out from its zero COVID policies. There is a degree of uncertainty about the economic mm-hmm. outlook. I mean, to talk us through the logic of making this decision and why you think perhaps they're right to support the market at this moment.
5: So a couple of things, right? First and foremost, there is a lot of uncertainty with the banking crisis. We know credit will tighten up. We know lending will tighten up. That does mean we are looking at a recessionary environment. Our balances actually talk about or they have factored in a recession in the U.S., in Europe. And that that does mean oil demand is going to slow. I'm in Asia right now. China is reopening. It is definitely booming over here. But there there are parts of China that are slower to reopen than other parts jet is one of them. You can't get flights because flights take time to be added back. So there are headwinds to demand. And I think the main thing is people were just very scared and a lot of people were coming in and shorting crude oil, expecting it to go down or rather betting on it to go down. That's what OPEC wanted to stop and stop very clearly saying, We are still looking after the market. We will ensure that stocks don't build even if demand goes down. So don't you dare short short this market.
0: Yeah. So basically what they've done is flush those shorts out because the last thing they wanted was a sort of dramatic collapse in, in energy prices, even if perhaps that's better for the for the consumers. You've also suggested, though, that we could see. Go on. Do you want to comment on that?
5: Yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I just challenging a little bit on to, in terms Please. of I don't necessarily s- think lower oil lo- lower oil prices is good for the consumer in the long run. Sure, in the short term, all of us want to pay l- less for petrol, right? But ultimately what that does is low oil prices means you don't get investment, which then leads to higher oil prices in the long term. So we need sustainable oil prices that's good for both consumers and producers.
0: Yeah, perfect point. I have 20 seconds what are the conditions required to see a $100 oil? Because I have seen analysts already saying that that's a risk.
5: Yeah, and we have our oil price forecast for the second half, which is above $100. Look, inventories are going to draw very, very sharply with these OPEC cuts. As long as the economy is OK, by that I mean a mild recession, the supply side of the market is far, far tighter, and we are going to get $100 in the second half of the year.
0: Wow. Amrita, great to have you on. Thank you so much. I know it's late Thank there. Amrita said. Co founder and director of research at Energy Aspects. And coming up after the break from fish to freewheeling French, are Parisians ahead of the curve when it comes to banning e scooters? Residents seem to be sick of the sight of them and have hit the brakes. We'll explain more next. Breaking news into CNN Evan Gershkovich, the American journalist detained in Russia, has filed an appeal against his arrest. The Wall Street Journal reporter was arrested in Russia last week and charged with spying. Russian media reporting that a complaint has been filed by Gershkovich's defense team. No date has been set for a hearing in the appeal. He's facing up to 20 years in prison on espionage charges. The Wall Street Journal has said the Russian allegations are untrue. Now to Paris, which was only recently besieged by piles of uncollected rubbish due to strike action, has now voted to rid itself of another hazard on the streets, electric scooters. In what's being described as a rare public consultation, 89% of residents have said not to rental scooters after accident rates soared and some riders took to speeding along sidewalks or pavements. Paris has almost 15,000 scooters on its streets. Paris correspondent Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, I have to say, I I can kind of understand this. They always go in the wrong direction. That's the biggest issue. You you don't even see them coming. That's
9: exactly right, Julia. For anyone who's been... Uh, in the French capital these last few years. It was back in 2018 uh, when they began appearing on Parisian streets. They'll have noticed exactly what you've seen, Julia, is that they're often going in the opposite direction to the traffic, which, which can make crossing the street here in France, in Paris at least, a uh, pretty dangerous uh, at the best of times. There are the cyclists, there are these scooters, there are pedestrians, and it was just a lot of chaos on the streets of the French capital. That was really the view that the French mayor took in deciding to hold this consultation, trying to figure out whether Parisians themselves were happy to have them uh, or not. Now, they've seen this huge expansion. You mentioned the fleet of 15,000 now in the streets of Paris. That's because the city has had to limit them. Initially, it was pretty unregulated. A lot of different operators came in. Uh, There were many, far too many of them on the streets, and it was even more hazardous. And yet, bike lanes have been introduced uh, fines can be imposed if people are driving them recklessly. Still, though, you'll see a lot of uh, young people especially getting on those scooters two or three at a time sometimes and powering down the streets pretty fast. I think that was behind her decision to hold the referendum. In the end, nearly 90 percent of Parisians said uh, that they were in favor of the ban, which will now therefore come into effect, Julia. By September 1st, all of these uh, scooters should be off the streets of Paris uh, because the operators will be seeing through the end of their contracts. But it was only 8% of those eligible to vote who actually bothered to go out and cast their vote in uh, Sunday's uh, election, Sunday's referendum. So not a huge turnout there here in Paris, but at least uh, that eyesore for those who considered it one uh, will should soon be a thing
0: of the past. Wow, only 8%. That's interesting. Well, they decide for, for everybody else. We just, saw, we just showed a woman actually going at about two miles an hour, I think. She's a hazard for a different reason. Um, Isabel, <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> for that. OK. And finally, a major match in the world of wrestling in the red corner. World Wrestling Entertainment, or WWE as it's better known, has pinned down a deal with the parent company of UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. The combined entity will be valued at over $21 billion. That's quite a tag team for those that watch it. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. So you can search for at CNN as always. In the meantime, connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow.